Hey folks, we're back this week with the third episode of Stay Tuned in Brief, and our focus for now remains on the fast-developing news of the Trump documents investigation. As you might imagine, questions have been raised about how prosecutors, if there's going to be a trial at some point, can prove the materials Trump refused to surrender were either classified or national defense information without making them public. As you might imagine, sometimes in our court system, defendants can take advantage of the problem known as gray mail in cases where classified information is at issue, arguing that the government must disclose the very documents it needs to keep secret for reasons of national security. So there's a tension there. To address the issue, Congress enacted a law called SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act in 1980, which tries to balance these issues, the defendant's interest in a fair trial, with the government's interest in guarding nuclear secrets, sources and methods, and other sensitive information. So we have another very smart person to come explain this to us. She is former acting assistant attorney general for the National Security Division, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School, and the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, Mary McCord. Mary, welcome to Stay Tuned in Brief. Thank you for having me, Preet. It's good to have you. I know you deal with these issues uh, inside of government, outside of government, and you're as good an expert as I know on these on these subjects. Just at the outset, could you just sort of explain to folks generally how we in this country resolve the tension between two, I think, legitimate principles? On the one hand, court proceedings are supposed to be open and transparent if there's a trial, particularly a criminal trial. And on the other hand, if the proceeding happens to involve, because of the nature of the charge or proof in the case, classified or other very sensitive information, how do you reconcile the need for openness with the need for secrecy? Well, it's a great question. And it it actually, there's a question that even precedes that one, which is how does the government make decisions about whether even to prosecute a case when the prosecution of that case will will require it right. in order to prove that something is national defense information will require it to reveal that information to the to the jury and to the defendant and of course to the judge and so as you indicated that tension i think of it as this inverse relationship whereby the most sensitive information the stuff that you would think we would most want to prosecute if it were mishandled because of the serious threat to national security um oftentimes instead means that's the case that might be the least likely to be prosecuted because- Is that a paradox? Well, it kind of is because the the more sensitive it is, you know, for the government to prosecute, they have to essentially be acknowledging that this this really is national defense information. It really would cause damage, even up to exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. And so, you know, that's, that's one reason that sometimes very serious matters do not end up being prosecuted. But when they are, there are procedures such as those under SEPA that you referred to, which at least allow for uh, a process for adjudicating pre-trial what types of classified information the defense might be entitled to in order to get a fair trial, and um, even sometimes substitute summaries or other, make other substitutions for the raw classified information in order to ensure that right to a fair trial. And that 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 law, SIPA, was passed in order to avoid the gray mill problem where at trial or in public, in front of a jury, in a public open courtroom, the defense would 
introduce classified information, uh, introduce a line of questioning that, pro- you know, provoked uh, the revealing classified information, that kind of thing that would be of great harm to the national security of the U.S. You said something interesting a few minutes ago about the decision to bring a charge in the first place. You and I both have experience in this. And I just want you to elaborate on it and explain to folks that there are actual legitimate righteous criminal prosecutions that the government decides not to bring because it would necessitate the harm that you described to national security. So one, how do you hold people accountable when that's the case? And two, explain a little bit, because people might find it interesting, what that debate and fight is like and who the participants are in making the decision to walk away from a case because it's so sensitive. Sure. So when there has been a mishandling of classified information, that might be a leak, like a leak to media or to someone who's not authorized to have it. It might actually be the transmission, you know, to a foreign government or a foreign agent of national security information that that will get reported um, to the Department of Justice and to other national security agencies in the U.S. government. And as part of the investigation, the, you know, an investigation will be launched to determine the source of that leak or that mishandling, etc. But before any type of prosecutorial decision gets made about ma- about whether to actually charge a crime, even assuming there's evidence sufficient to establish a crime such as a 793 offense, which is one of the crimes that is mentioned in the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, before that decision gets made, the Department of Justice has to consult with the intelligence agencies and particularly the ones who actually own that classified information. So what that means is intelligence is collected by various different agencies, right? Department of Defense through the National Security Agency and others, the CIA, the FBI, foreign governments share national security information with us or national defense information with us. And so before you can use it, the department has to go and engage with that other agency to basically say, will you will you let us use this? What would you yeah. let us do? And they sometimes say, no. no. They sometimes say, and it's not just the foreign folks. And, and maybe right. maybe you can talk about this a little bit, because in my experience, going back to being a U.S. attorney in 2009, but also being a line prosecutor working on terrorism cases just after 9-11, that augured in a season of cases that really required more often than in prior years, in prior decades, the admission of sensitive information, classified information. And my recollection is there was a lot of back and forth between the Department of Justice and the intelligence community, particularly the CIA, about what could or could not be used. And the agency sometimes had to get a crash course from prosecutors in my office and in Washington about how protective that SEPA law might be. Do, do you think there's been a, a better trend towards using that law and, and, and being able to bring classified information into the courtroom? I do think that since 9-11 in particular, and since sort of that wall came down between um, intelligence and law enforcement in terms of the sharing of information, and that was quite purposefully so that we wouldn't have gaps that lead to things like 9-11, I do think since then the intelligence community has become more familiar with the processes that are available uh, in the course of a criminal prosecution to protect national security interests. Um, and so I certainly, in my own experience, like yours, I'm sure, Preet, did see numerous cases where we 
availed ourselves, the, the Justice Department, of SEPA's procedures. I will tell you also that sometimes what, <laughs> what we've done is negotiate with the intelligence agency in advance that, look, we will, we will try our best to protect everything. We will use SEPA's procedures, right? These procedures of going to the court and saying, here are the things that we think in fairness the defendant's entitled to, the defendant has requested. Here's how we would try to substitute those. Here's how we would try to protect national security while also protecting the defendant's constitutional rights. And when we would negotiate with the intelligence agency, if it gets to point X, this red line of the intelligence agency, and the agency won't let us go any further than that, and the court demands that we go further than that, you know, we will litigate like heck. But if we lose that in the court, we won't bring the case. And sometimes you you try to establish those parameters in advance so that you partly just for a resource, you know, for resources to not have a case that's at least proceeding to a certain extent in the public eye. You've returned right. an indictment, things are being published, and you know, it's not a good look to then drop it midstream. Right. Um so you want to have figured out what is the likelihood where we're actually going to be get get all the way to trial on this. So everyone is thinking about the sensitivities far in advance. But so the the decision maker, let's suppose that the controversy is between the Department of Justice, who wants to bring a case, but the sensitive and classified information is owned by the agency, the CIA. And they're adamantly opposed to revealing that information, even availing themselves of the Classified Information Procedures Act. Do they have veto power? Well, you know... I I never really got into a situation where I guess I would call it the veto. I would call the product of negotiation. Um, and uh, frankly, the Department of Justice at some point also, you know, understanding being on the same page and understanding as much as we really wanted to prosecute something, you know, sometimes they convince us also that there's certain things you know, we just can't do and still protect national security. So, you know, I, I guess in some ways you might think of it as veto power, but the National Security Division is also very interested in protecting of course. national security, as are the U.S. attorneys, right? And so it's certain it's, at a certain point you recognize, okay, that this really would be too damaging. Um, another thing that can happen, you know, assuming you've kind of negotiated the pretrial space and, and satisfied all of the discovery obligations and obligations under Brady, those are the obligations of the government to disclose any potentially inculpatory or exculpatory evidence that might be material to the defense. Supposing you've negotiated all that, right, you still have to prove in front of a jury that the, that the information really, you know, is national defense information. And one other thing that SEPA provides is that even though you're going to have to show it to the jury in order to establish that it really is national defense information, it doesn't lose its classification status automatically because of that. And so there are cases where you can uh, ask the court to close the courtroom to the public during those particular parts of the trial, not the whole trial, but during those particular parts of the trial where this national defense information will be revealed so that it is only being revealed to the jury, the defendant and defense counsel and the judge, which, you know, gets us back to the tension we started with, which is that the public doesn't then get to have a full 
you know, understanding of exactly what it is, but it is something of a compromise and it's done only where the government's interests are, are most compelling. Um, and, uh, that is one way of still protecting it. And then the intelligence community, it still retains its classified, classified status and the intelligence community can sometimes feel a little bit more comfortable in the hopes that, you know, jurors will understand that they really shouldn't go yeah. out and blab this stuff to, to the world. So before we conclude, let's apply these issues and this information to the current controversy. The issue with respect to the sensitive and classified documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago, one, and I hate this question, but I get to ask questions on this program, so I'll ask you, do you have any view on the likelihood of an indictment against the former president with respect to this information? So, you know, I really don't because even assuming evidence beyond that, you know, sufficient to prove every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, a 793 offense. Let's put aside the other two offenses for a moment. You still have, obviously, these negotiations with the intelligence community. I mean, there's lots of documents, lots of choices, it would appear. And it could be that some are far too sensitive to use at trial. And it could be that the ones that the intelligence community is comfortable using don't seem that important. I mean, they wouldn't be classified if they weren't important, but- That's another paradox, right? So you want to proceed with evidence in the case with respect to the stuff that's not so sensitive to say the sensitive stuff, but then the jury, if there was one convened and there was a trial, doesn't get to have the benefit of understanding the seriousness of the violation because you're trying to keep the more sensitive stuff out. Is that a fair concern? Yes, that's exactly right. So, so my point being that will go into the decision making of the government, and and you know even assuming they can come to an agreement with the um, intelligence community, and then there's of course all the prudential concerns that you know many commentators have been talking about, which is what kind of precedent this establishes, and we you know, can balance out the need for accountability, particularly for a former president who is 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 actually you know not taking any responsibility for anything and has doubled down on his claims of election fraud, et cetera, and is seems to be a real threat to democracy, you know, balancing that against the precedent for potential politicization going forward of cases against former presidents. So it's a tough, tough call for Attorney General Merrick Garland. And and those considerations would also apply to the other possible offenses like the obstruction of justice or or the mishandling of presidential records. And, you know, there could be other offenses as well that would be considered. Um, I do think, you know, to, invo- to avoid some of these problems we've been talking about regarding revealing classified information, you know, it is important to recognize there are other possible offenses that would not necessarily recall require revealing all of that. Would there be a possibility, and these are obviously, you know, unique parties here, uh, when you're talking about the former president of the United States, could you see an accommodation in which the defense, in this case, the hypothetical former president, would stipulate that the material that was retained at Mar-a-Lago had a certain level of sensitivity so that they would not be prejudiced by the bringing in of more details about that. Because with respect to some of these statutes, including the one you mentioned, actually having classified information is not necessary to prove the crime. So apart from SEPA, apart from statutory protections, do you ever see a case in which everyone sort of agrees, because it's in everyone's interest, to just sort of agree about what the information was and how sensitive it was, but without revealing its particulars? Well, in most cases, I would say the defense would not agree to that because they they really want to engage in this gray mail. They really would prefer to put the 
department to the Hobson's choice of having to dis- having to decide to probably just drop the case rather than risk the threat to national security. Right. Here, it's like a game you of said, chicken. it's a game of chicken a little to- bit. Totally right, and and here, of course, it could also be damaging to the former president politically if you know some of this information were to be introduced at trial, which really shows really significant and you know uh, and sensitive information that would make him look bad, um, look worse than maybe he otherwise looks. But, you know, it's impossible for me to ever predict what uh, former President Trump will do because um, all the norms, you know, all of my years, and and, I'm, and I'd be curious about yours, Preet, of both at the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and at Maine D- Justice and the National Security Division, you know, we had certain things we could sort of predict in terms of behavior of defendants, and, and he's just a completely different animal. A final question. Anything else you can say about your sense of how deeply sensitive these documents are from what we know about the markings and what's become public? Well, you know, we have almost every type of special access program and secured compartmentalized information represented, it appears, just by reading the unredacted portions of the search warrant and kind of taking in a glance at the photograph that was an exhibit to the government's filing on Tuesday night. I don't know what the topics of those are, but I mean, what I do know is we're talking about confidential human sources. We're talking about uh, intelligence collection methods through signals intelligence and other intercepts. And so we're talking about some of our most sensitive programs. And, you know, topic, subject matter-wise, it could be everything from straight up, you know, counterintelligence information to uh, terrorism information to information about sort of our most protected crown jewels, technology, financial systems, communication systems, mass transits, things that we don't share publicly um, because they're so sensitive. So there's so many things that this could, and obviously I didn't even mention military movements and things like that. So, but what I know is the sources and methods aspect of this is, um, you know, clearly very, very sensitive given the markings we've seen on the cover sheets and, and which have been revealed in the, in the unredacted portions of the affidavit. This is supposed to be in brief, so I have to stop asking you questions now before you reveal some classified information. <laughs> right. Uh, Mary McCord, thanks for being with us. It's good to talk to you after so long. It's my pleasure, Preet. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.